Uh, the first reading uh, this, this tonight is uh, from Ezekiel uh, chapter 40, verses 1 uh, to 4, and then chapter 43, 1 to 12, starting on page 616. The New Temple Area. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the month, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the fall of the city, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there. In visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain, on whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city. He took me there, and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. The man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and pay attention to everything I am going to show you. For that is why you have been brought here. Tell the house of Israel everything you see. I'm going to 43. The glory returns to the temple. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of a rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city and like the visi visions I had seen by the Kebar River, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. When the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The house of Israel will never again defile my holy name. Neither they, neither they nor their kings, by their prostitution and their lifeless idols of their kings at their high places. When they placed their threshold next to my threshold and their doorposts besides my doorposts, with only a war between me and them, they defiled my holy name by their detestable practices. So I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them put away, now let them put away from me their prostitution and their lifeless idols of their kings, and I will live among them forever. Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider the plan, and if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple its arrangements, its exits and entrances, its whole design and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them so that they may be faithful to its design and follow all its regulations. This is the law of the temple. All the surrounding area on top of the mountain will be most holy. Such is the law of the temple. Uh, the next reading is from Ezekiel chapter 47, and that's on page 623 of your Bibles. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate, and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward 
with a measuring line in his hand. He measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore. From En Gedi to En Eglaim, there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. And the final reading is from John, uh, chapter 7, and that can be found on page 756 of your Bibles. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his time had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, Will he do more miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whisper such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, 
If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those believed in him were later to receive. Up to, the up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Thanks, Rich. Good evening, friends. Uh, those of you who don't know who I am, I'm Simon. I'm uh, one of the ministers here at church. Uh, tonight, we come to the end of our six weeks on Ezekiel. Uh, some of you will breathe an enormous sigh of relief at that. Um, it's been a long journey. Um, I was just reflecting on with someone tonight. It seems like not that long ago that we started, but at the same time, it feels like a long time ago that we started. Um, we come to tonight uh, the end of Ezekiel, this amazing book. If you've been with us, you would have heard my little analogy that uh, Ezekiel is like um, Paul Keating, ex-Prime Minister Paul Keating's economic policy. It's like the J-curve. Things, before they get better, have to get really bad. Um, so tonight we come to the end and we reach the top of the J-curve. Uh, we see that after God appeared in chapter 1, his glory appeared to Ezekiel on the Kabar River in Babylon, uh, exiled is Israel uh, because of their sinfulness. Uh, God appears. Then we just plunge into judgment for, well, seven years really in the life of Ezekiel from chapters 4 to 24. We then reach where Jerusalem is surrounded. More judgment comes on all the world. We looked at that, that because everyone is sinful, everyone's fallen from their relationship for God, with God, everyone needs Jesus. We get to where Jerusalem falls in chapter 33. It kind of is the darkest moment in the life of God's people since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. But then the kind of J-curve kicks up and we looked at that God gives his people a new shepherd. He, he unites his people around that good shepherd. There's this new security that he gives a new temple is what we look at tonight, and then it just is as good as it can get. Uh, that's what we're going to look at tonight, the future perfect, the future perfect. I've got a question for you tonight as we start, but before I ask you the question, I'm going to pray. Uh, will you pray with me? Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do praise you uh, that in Jesus you have made your dwelling amongst us and that by your Holy Spirit you dwell with us right now as your temple. We praise that you have prepared for us a place of utter perfection where your glory will be, where there will be no sin, where we will dwell with you forever. And we ask that you would lift our eyes this night, Lord God. Lift our eyes to your new creation and move us as we anticipate it. Help us to live lives now that are worthy of you and reflect our true belief in this coming kingdom where we will dwell with you and you will dwell with us forever and ever. We pray this for your glory's sake, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. I've got a question. Uh, it's a question, it's a hard question for you tonight. Uh, the question is, is a question that's been asked by philosophers and people who like to think themselves as philosophers for years and years and years. Uh, they've asked this question and they've written answers to this question over years and years and years. 
It's a question. It's a hard question. It's a tough question. But it's a question that I think if I actually kind of hung out with you for a week, like if I just sort of walked behind you for a week, I think I could work out your answer to this question by the way you live, uh, what you do, what you don't do, what you say, what you don't say, um, where you go, where you don't go. I think I could answer that question, you know, maybe not perfectly, but I could get the answer close. It's a tough question because we live out our answer to this question all the time. Do you know what the question is? You'll live out this question. Let me help. It's, this is the question. What is the greatest good? What is the greatest good? Yeah, that's how the philosophers sort of word it. I don't, I'm not really a philosopher, but let me change the wording for you so we can actually understand what that actual question means. This is what the question means. What is the best thing there is? What is the best thing there is? If you were to sit down right now and tell me what is the best thing that there is. I was on Facebook. I occasionally jump onto Facebook. I put on my Facebook status profile, what is the best thing there is? I don't have many friends, so not many friends replied. But some people gave me a few answers. I almost started a marriage breakdown, I think, with one of the person who replied, and they're in the building right tonight. You can find out who they are afterwards. But what is the best thing that there is? What would make your list? I think the hard part is knowing kind of where to start. There are so many things that are good. There are so many things that are really good, the best things. If I was writing the list, I think I'd sort of do these sort of things. I'd put friendship on the list. I think that's one of the best things that there is because it's better than enmity. I'd put security on the list because I think it beats insecurity any day. I'd put peace. Anyone who's seen war knows that peace is better than war. I'd put prosperity on the list because it certainly beats poverty. I'd put leisure and pleasure on my list because it's better than toil, it's better than pain. There are so many things that are good. There are so many things that are sort of best things that I'd put on my list. And you can tell that they're good things because they're the things that we actually live for. They're the things that kind of shape how we live day to day. Leisure, pleasure, security, peace, prosperity. They shape what you do, where you go, what you say, what you don't say. But what is the greatest good? What is the best thing there is? Our world, which doesn't know its creator and is unaware of its end, cannot get that question right. Tonight I want to take you through, at least at the beginning, three Old Testament places uh, where we see the answer to this question, what is the best thing there is? What is the greatest good? Uh, three places in the, New Te- in the Old Testament, then we're going to jump to three places in the Old Testament. Don't worry, we're going to get to Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48 uh, as we go through this. But let's have a look at a few. Where would you go? Where would you go in the Bible to find out what is the greatest good? What is the greatest good? Here's my first one, Genesis chapter 1. You'd go to Genesis chapter 1. It's on the screen. God sees the things that he had made in Genesis chapter 1 and again and again and again God says the refrain, it was good, it was good, it was good. 
the chapter moves to that wonderful kind of concluding statement at the end of chapter 1 where God says he sees all that he's made and he rests on that final day and he says this is very good. The emphasis there. Genesis 1 announces that God's created a really good world. Very good world. But what's so good about the world that God has created in Genesis chapter 1? We go to Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, there's a garden. There's a river in that garden that flows out of the garden. Man and woman are in the garden in perfect relation. But more importantly, and more remarkable than man and woman being in perfect relationship, is that those that man and the woman are in perfect relationship with God. God is with his creation. Man and woman in conscious relationship with God. God in their midst. God there providing for his people. God caring for them. God loving them. Enjoying his presence. Perfect relationship. Could anything be better than that? Perfect relationship with the one who's made you? What is the best thing at that point early in the Old Testament? It's the Garden of Eden. In perfect relationship with God. The second, however, comes much later in the Old Testament. It comes in Psalm 48 and 46. Uh, Turn up with me in your Bibles to Psalm 48. Psalm 48. Come with me there. Psalm 48, page 403 in our Bibles. When you get to Psalm 48, you've moved down a long time in the history of God's people. We're sort of tracking through many, many, many years. A lot of time's passed since the Garden of Eden. Here we are in the days of Israel. Israel is the chosen people of God. They're not in the Garden anymore. In fact, what's really helpful for us here is that this psalm, Psalm 48, was sung in a world by these people in a world that's quite similar to ours. A world much like ours, marred by sin, spoilt in so many ways. But in Israel, they used to sing Psalm 48. Psalm 48 is all about Jerusalem, the city built in Mount Zion, on Mount Zion. And Psalm 48, if you read Psalm 48, the Israelites sing this song and they rave about Jerusalem. They love Jerusalem. They're singing about Jerusalem. What is so amazing about Jerusalem? Jerusalem didn't have a harbour bridge. Jerusalem didn't have a harbour bridge because they didn't have a harbour. They didn't have an opera house to rave about. What's so amazing about Jerusalem? What's so good about Jerusalem? What makes Jerusalem the best thing there is? Listen to the rave of Psalm 48, uh, verses 1 to 3. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain. It is beautiful in its loftiness. The joy of the whole earth, like the utmost heights of Zaphon, is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. God, God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. Flick down with me to verse 9. Verse 9. Within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. And verse 12. Verse 12 kind of addresses tourists who are coming into Jerusalem. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Count her towers. Consider well her ramparts. 
you, her citadels, that you may tell of them to the next generation. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. What's so remarkable about the city of Jerusalem? God was there. God was there in her midst. God was pleased to be present in the city, in the temple that was built there. God was pleased to be known in that city. That made Jerusalem, as they sung, the greatest city in the world, the best thing that there was. Built on a little mound, Mount Zion, but the greatest mound in the whole world for God's people, Mount Zion. God was in her midst. Come with me to another one of Israel's greatest hits, uh, track number 46 on the iPod of Israel, God's chosen people. And come with me to verse 45. Just flick back a page. Chapter, uh, Psalm 46, uh, verses 4 and 5. Uh, this is what they sang in Israel about Jerusalem. This is what they sang, verse 4 and 5. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her and she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. God is in her midst. God is there amongst his people in the temple in that city. Now, friends, if you've been with us through this journey through Ezekiel, then you can appreciate the disaster for the people who sang these songs. When news came to them as they sat in Babylon that the city has fallen. Jerusalem wiped out, chapter 33. The great city was no more. You can see why these, well, are some of the darkest days in the, days of Ezekiel, in the days of Israel and God's people. The best thing that there is, God himself dwelling in Jerusalem, is gone. His glory has departed from them. The best thing that there is was God dwelling in his city with his people. They couldn't sing as they sat by the rivers of Babylon, Psalm 46 and Psalm 48. God had gone. And that brings us back at last to Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48, uh, where we see some remarkable words going on, this final and great section of this extraordinary book. Uh, come back with me to chapter 40 um, of Ezekiel's uh, book, chapter 40. This word of God that we've been studying over the past few, for, uh, six weeks, this word that first came to the people of Israel in their darkest days, we've been seeing that this message points us to the Lord Jesus Christ and his message that uh, we'll again see tonight is that Jesus is the centre of this whole text, really. We come to this vision that stands at the end of the book. I don't dare to ask anyone who's managed to read through Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48 over the last week in your quiet times. It's not easy going, but we'll briefly look at it tonight. This brief, this vision, it's remarkable in its detail. One of our greatest problems is it's, it's got so much detail that we can't actually work through the text methodically. 
uh, these various chapters. Uh, This time uh, we meet Ezekiel again. He's given a vision of this future perfect temple. The chapters are hard to read, I think mainly because we're not ancient Israelites. That's one of the things we really struggle with. Not much, um, there's not much I can do about the fact that we're not actually ancient Israelites. Uh, we'll all be ancient one day, um, God willing, but we can't be ancient Israelites. It's really hard. But if, we've, if we had been one of Ezekiel's original hearers, hearing these words of Ezekiel as he passed them on to his people, these people, I reckon we'd have no trouble understanding it. We would have hung on every word that Ezekiel said. Jerusalem is smashed, is crushed. Because you see, what Ezekiel sees in his vision is a future perfect. What Ezekiel saw in this vision of the future is a new temple, God again dwelling with his people. If you'd been one of the people of Israel who'd sung Psalm 46, Psalms 48 all your life, if you'd been a person who'd known the Old Testament and the, you know, the temple at Jerusalem, if you knew it to be a place where God was present with his people, if the temple had been a place where you'd sung Psalm 46, where you meditated on God's steadfast love, if it had been a place where God had been in the midst of you, then, friends, quite frankly, you would hang on every word of, Psalm, of, of what Ezekiel has to say here tonight. And the prophet Ezekiel comes to you and he tells you that God has shown him a vision of the future. And that vision of the future has in it a new temple. Then you'd have no difficulty kind of wanting to know every detail, methodically working through every detail of the text. We can't look at every detail, every word, every measurement tonight of this grand new temple. We can't do much about the fact that we're not ancient Israelites. So we're going to have to be content with having a brief look, and particularly at chapter 47. We're going to pause there for a moment. So come with me to verse of chapter 47. Now here we focus on the meaning of this vision and what Ezekiel sees in chapter 47. Chapter 47 begins, verse 1. The man, the man who'd been showing Ezekiel this vision, brought me back to the entrance of the temple, this temple that he was seeing in the vision. And I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. Just before you say there must be a leak in the temple, remember the songs that they'd sung in Jerusalem and about the temple? The Psalms raved about the temple in Jerusalem and one of the images they used to describe what was going on in the temple, its goodness, the goodness of the presence of God, was that they were... It was refreshing like the waters of a river. Psalm 46 that we read before, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. There wasn't actually a river flowing out of the temple. It's poetic language. There was no river in Jerusalem. It's part of this poetic imagery, the description of just how wonderful the city of God is. Now picture what Ezekiel sees in this future perfect temple. Verse, the second half of verse 1. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. 
He then brought me out through the north gate and led me round the outside of the outer gate facing east, and the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits. It was ankle deep. Verse 4, he measured off another cubits. It was knee deep. Another thousand cubits. It was up to my waist. He measured off another thousand, but the river had now was too hard to cross. It was deep enough to swim in. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? The river of this temple, you see, so says Ezekiel. The future perfect temple is actually, and the river flowing from that temple is a greater river than the temple they sung about in Mount Zion. The future that Ezekiel sees surpasses even the wildest dreams of the Israelites as they raved about Jerusalem. Read on with me from verse 7. Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows towards the east, towards the region that goes down to the Arabah, where the sea enters. It looks a little here like the Garden of Eden, but it's even better than that. Verse 8, it flows into the Arabah. It's a description of the Dead Sea, the water flowing into the Dead Sea. Uh, into verse 9. Verse 9, swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows from there and makes salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Everything will live. The description says that so many fish will be there. So many fish. This river will flow and provide life and life in abundance like never before providing food providing fruit for food leaves for healing in verse 12 just imagine that for a moment a river flowing out in this future perfect temple from the presence of god that just gives abundance of life like it's never been known before Picture that river in your mind, a river that flows out and it just transforms the world. The blessing of God is pouring out beyond the temple, beyond the New Jerusalem, beyond the land that just surrounds it, right out to the ends of the earth, bringing life to all that it passes by. That's the picture. That's the picture. In the remaining chapter or so, the end of the book, more details are given about the new land that is to come and be given to God's people. The land that will surround this new future perfect temple. The whole book closes by telling us the name of this new future perfect city. It gives us the name. This extraordinary city where this temple will stand, this future perfect city, won't bear Mount Zion, won't bear the name Jerusalem, Come with me right to the very last phrase of the whole book of Ezekiel. And there the name of the city from that time on will be, the Lord is there. That's the name of the city. The Lord is there. This is Ezekiel's vision. His final vision, his vision of the perfect future, the the future, future perfect that God promises. And these are amazing words of encouragement for the the Israelites in in Ezekiel's day. 
temple wiped out in Jerusalem, but this future perfect temple will be more than they could ever have imagined. This is substantial hope for them. That God is calling Ezekiel's hearers to. The remarkable message that he brought them was this. The best thing that there can be, the greatest good that there is, exactly is exactly what God will provide for you. This future perfect city. And he promises to give it to them. This is the message of Ezekiel. We can't go any further than that if we stay in the pages of the Old Testament. For it's the word of the New Testament that speaks this into our lives. Let me draw your attention to three stark statements in the New Testament. First one is John chapter 2. Now follow along with me if you want or just listen in. John chapter 2 verse 18. Jesus here is in conflict with the authorities uh, as he always used to get into. And verse 18 of John chapter 2. The Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all that you're planning to do? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Another temple, it's true, had been built uh, since Ezekiel's day. We need to understand that, but it wasn't a temple that looked anything like the temple that had been broken down and smashed to pieces in Ezekiel chapter 33. It was a smaller one. It's taken us 46 years to rebuild the temple, Jesus, And you're going to raise it in three days? John comments, but the temple he'd spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. You see, they saw a connection between the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. What was the scripture? Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, of course. What did they realize when Jesus had raised from the dead, when he had bodily been raised from the dead three days after he died on a cross for the sin of the world? They realized that the temple had been built. The temple that Ezekiel had seen had come in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all that that temple stood for, all that that temple had represented, that substantial hope had been realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. What Ezekiel had seen in a vision had come to reality. The reality of God's presence had once again been opened for all of humankind. And all human beings could be once again in the presence of God, the Lord Almighty. They realized that again you could sing Psalm 48 because Jesus was alive. The temple had been built. You could sing Psalm 46 again. Jesus was alive. The temple had been built. And where can he sing those songs? In the presence of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's where you can sing those songs. Come with me, though, to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 37. We're at the Feast of Tabernacles, and in verse 37, we pick up what happened on the last day of this feast. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood, it was a big crowd on this particular day, and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, 
Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams, rivers of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. What is the New Testament message? What is the New Testament gospel? It's that the temple has been rebuilt. You only understand that if you have read Ezekiel. The temple has been built and it's being built. Whoever believes in me, those who come to the Lord Jesus Christ, from them streams, rivers of living water will flow from them and from within them. Where does that image come from? Ezekiel. Chapters 40 to 48, 47 in particular. The reality of that blessing pouring out into the world. Life in abundance. The temple and all those who are built into Jesus Christ, in him, through faith in him. And finally then, turn with me to Revelation 21. Paul read these words out a little bit earlier. So many of Ezekiel's final chapters and the details in them form the basis of so much of what we see in Revelation chapter 21. John also gets a vision of God and from God of what is still to come for all those who are in Christ, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What the future still holds, this substantial hope to which God calls all of us, you and me today too, the future perfect. Revelation 21 verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now! Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he, God, will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For The old order of things has passed away. That's the substantial hope to which we, if you're a Christian, are living for. The holy city of God. Where God is in her midst. God dwells with us. We dwell with God forever and ever. No pain, no tears, no mourning, no crying. That is the substantial hope to which we are called to live for. Friends, it's been some weeks since we began this series of expositions on Ezekiel. And I began suggesting by that if you, in a world such as ours, in our world we, we pit our hopes on such hopeless hopes, such insubstantial hopes fill our lives day in, day out. We live in a world where you don't have to live very long to, live, to work out that we live in a world that keeps holding out hopeless hopes day after day. In a world that has to manufacture hopeless hopes just to kind of survive. 
But to know God is to know hope. Real hope. Access to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Access to a new home, a home that will never perish, spoil or fade. So I conclude the series with the question, what is the best thing that there is? What is the best thing that there is? Poverty, prosperity, security, leisure, pleasure, singleness, marriage. What is the best thing that there is? God himself. The heavenly city. What are the things that motivate you? What are the longings of your heart that drive you day to day? What is the hope that is in you tonight? Is it this? This hope. This solid hope. A hope of being in God's midst forever and ever. A new heaven, a new earth, the city of God, as good as it gets. The future perfect. I hope you've realized that this future, this perfect home, is given to the people of God. It's given to us. It's given to the Israelites. It was, they didn't earn it. All they did was sin, and yet God had mercy upon them. They didn't earn it. They haven't worked for it. Yet God gives us this great hope because he loves us gives us this perfect future, this future perfect home, the city whose name is the Lord is there. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, we hear from the Apostle Peter, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Friends, this exploration of Ezekiel over the past six weeks must, hope, must make us realise that our only hope is God. And the only hope for our world is God and salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest news in all the world is that the slaughtered Lamb of God reigns as sovereign Lord of all. And you can be with him forever. Don't let tonight go by without trusting in the Lord Jesus. Turn from following deaf, mute idols. Invest entirely in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from resting on your ancestors' achievements and rest on the achievements of the Lord Jesus Christ. And please turn, I pray for us as a whole church, that we turn from a lax and casual attitude towards the glory of God and give him the honour that he deserves to pursue him with all our heart, soul, mind and strength for the rest of our days as we long for the future perfect. Let's pray as we close together. Father, we realise that tonight 
our state before you, our circumstance, our situation before you without Christ is utterly hopeless. And dear Father, when we come before you, we know our hearts and our lives are fully open in your view. We know the idols that we secretly worship and that are hidden to others but are fully displayed before you. You see the truth about us. And so, Father, we pray that in your mercy you would just destroy these idols from our lives, O Lord. O Lord, come after us, even as you did with your people here in this book of Ezekiel. Do not allow us to love anything as much as we love you. Give us this desire. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.